1 Peter 1 and 1. You might know this verse. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is part four of Messages to the Dispersed Church. God bless you for being here tonight, for watching online. Please be seated and let's turn our hearts to the Bible. Amen. So what I want to focus on tonight is through this book, three particular areas that the Apostle Peter covers to demonstrate how our attitude and our behavior, attitudes and our behaviors can be a witness for Jesus Christ. So this is week four, as I mentioned, and my objective is to show how things we go through and circumstances we're in uh, can demonstrate God's power and glory through us. So the three relationships that the Apostle Peter talked about, there are more, but especially three I want to deal with, are civil relationships, corporate relationships, and domestic relationships. And he tells us in this book, if you go through the book of 1 Peter, that there are really three reasons that we should live honorably, honestly, King James uses the word conversation, we know it's our conduct, our behavior, and it uses the word honest or godly. First, it's the right thing to do because we're called to be holy. Secondly, it pleases the Lord. Peter tells us that. And thirdly, our conduct is a witness to the world. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy, excuse me, a peculiar, let me back up, get ahead of myself, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar set-apart people that you should show forth the praises of him. So here is kind of a crux in the book of 1 Peter. This is why God called you out of darkness. This is why he made you his people, not for yourself only, for the salvation it would bring to you, but he called you that you could declare, that you would show forth the praises of him who have called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Then he reminds us, which in time past were not a people, but now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now you've obtained mercy. And then dearly beloved, this is kind of this whole theme of Peter, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Remember, you're scattered in the world. You're dispersed. So I'm begging you, I'm urging you strongly as people who are here for a while and then forever in heaven, that while you're here, you need to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So you're going to be in a battle against Satan and sin. And then verse 12, having your behavior, your conversation, honest among the Gentiles. So we're now we're going to be a testimony. We're going to live the life in front of ungodly people that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they don't understand you, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now this has a connotation that we'll see in 1 Peter 3 that not only are they just going to glorify God. Now if they're being judged and they're going to the lake of fire, I doubt they're going to glorify you. But if your life brings them into, brings them into a relationship with Jesus Christ, if they're saved because of your witness, then they glorify God in the day of visitation 
because your godly life, your life avoiding sin made such an impact on them that it brought them into the kingdom of God. Called out of darkness to change the world. The people of God. We have a past, and this is a poem, they say, verse 10. We're not a people, but now the people of God. It's a poem from Hosea, and Paul quotes it also in Romans chapter 9. The people of God. So he said, since you belong to him, live like a person who has his citizenship, her citizenship in heaven. That's why we live holy. Verse 15 and 16. But as he which hath called you is holy. This is the first reason we live holy. So be you holy in all conversation, all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be you holy, for I am holy. Now that's just the bottom line. This is not the series on holiness or apostolic identity. But the Apostle Peter says that God called you out of darkness into marvelous light. He called you to be a separate people, a holy people. But then in verse 12, he talks about the reason, this conversation among the Gentiles. So one, you should be holy because your God is holy. And second, you should be holy because of the people who are watching your life, verse 12. Now, I'm going to go past that. I'm not going to bear down on that verse right now. But the Apostle Peter is driving home the importance of living a godly life. It's the right thing to do. It pleases the Lord and it is a witness to the world. How you suffer is a witness to the world. How you submit to civil authority, to corporate authority, to domestic authority is a witness to the world. And in the month of March, we're going to talk more about the mission that he dispersed us for. We've talked about that to some degree, but to what end did he disperse us throughout all the world? God intentionally allows us to live in a world that is inhospitable. It's an environment that is often not friendly to Christian people, but it is not an accident. He put us there on purpose for His purpose that we would make a difference in the world. So let's go into these three areas. Civil authority is in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. Corporate authority, same chapter, verse 2, chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. Domestic authority, 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. So let's look at this first area of authority. You may recognize some of these ideas from Romans chapter 13 and other places in the epistles. 1 Peter 2, 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether it be to the king, for them it was the emperor, as supreme, or unto governors, as unto them who are sent by him. They are people under the authority of the king. For, and here's their purpose. For the punishment of evildoers. Good government has the purpose of punishing evildoers. And for the praise of them that do well, they're going to treat you well, they're going to be kind to you if you do the right thing. Verse 15. For so is the will of God that with well-doing, with living a godly life, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. People who do not know God look at your life 
and your contrast of the way you live to the way they live, and you're going to silence their foolish accusations against you as Christians. And then he says in verse 16, as free, you're free in Christ, you've been delivered, and not, but not using your liberty or a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. In other words, don't go around and say, oh, I'm free in Christ, so I can live any way I want. That's not what it means to be free in Christ. Then he says in verse 17, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So let's go through this passage and see what he has to say. We've read it. I know you've got it. But first, he said, the reason that you submit in verse 13 is for the Lord's sake. You submit because God has called you to do that and you are a witness for Him. And then he said, you need to submit to these various levels of government. The king who is supreme and then to governors who are sent by Him to enforce the law. They are supposed to beat up on the bad guys and protect the good guys. This is the way government was designed to work, even in their culture, even under, in the Roman Empire, that was the purpose of government. Romans 13, parallel passage. And verse 15, when we're good citizens and follow the law, it silences our critic. Now I've already referred to this verse, but let me just read through this. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So when you obey civil authority as an act of submission, and in some cases it might be an act of suffering, you are a witness and it pleases the Lord. Our unsaved friends, our unsaved family members, classmates, co-workers, they may look at your life and in the beginning they may say, you know, these Christians are really strange people. They're really weird. They're honest, they're moral, they're cooperative, they're good people. They've got the best attitudes of anybody we know. Huh. I thought they were really strange people. And it's pretty good to have people like that in our neighborhood, in our community. They don't steal from you. They don't lie to you. They don't lust after your spouse. They keep their word even when it's not to their advantage, they swear to their own hurt and they do not change. And they do good to people who mistreat them. That's what Peter is saying. At first, they don't get you. They don't understand you. But you wear well as a Christian. Over time, they start seeing, well, you know what? This is not such a bad deal to have a believer in our company, a believer in our neighborhood, a believer in our family. The Apostle Peter makes it clear that we're to submit to government. Now, there are limitations, amen, when government violates the Word of God. We submit to God above government. But he tells us to submit to all levels of government. The king, you know, and then the governors, the procurators who were sent. These governing uh, agencies that we would deal with. But we know that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, not the president, not the governor, not the mayor. But God works through government. And government will always be imperfect. Sometimes 
It might even be corrupt as it was in the days of Jesus, kangaroo court, illegal trial at night, unjustly crucified. I would say that's a bad government. The apostle Paul, falsely charged, should have been set at liberty, illegally bound, at least more than once, and still God had his way through government. Amen. But government does bring some semblance of order to our life. Verse 13 again. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king supreme, unto governors, they punish evildoers, and to the praise of them. So the emperor was not the only one, the king, that you were to submit to. He tells them governors. And those would have been the procurators, uh, the pro-councils, and for the common person, they would never look at the emperor. They would never go to Rome. They would never see the emperor of the empire. But they would deal with local magistrates. They might deal with the procurator or governor of an area. And so the apostle Peter says, I know you live out here in this Gentile world. You know, this is primarily Asia Minor, but written for all of us. And you've got mayors or whatever they would call them You've got pro-councils or governors of these areas. And I know they're not perfect, but you submit to their authority because it's a good, it's the right thing to do. It pleases the Lord and it's a testimony to them. Amen. That's not an easy thing to do, right? Right. Amen. But he says they're there to punish. Now, you know, in the Old Testament, you had, you had the nations that took God's people into captivity, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. But the Bible calls them the servants of God to execute His wrath and to for the punishment of those doing evil. God used pagan empires to punish His people for their sins. God used civil government to correct His own people. But then He condemned their means and their motives. Jeremiah would argue that they should not resist Babylon, but neither should they join Babylon. So we have this tension of submitting while not capitulating to the culture. But it's pretty clear that we should, we should submit to governing authorities. Now, here's the thing about, here's, a, here's the difference between us and the world. Pagan people, then and now, they live by convenience, but Christians live by convictions. We live by biblical principles that we have determined to follow whatever the cost. If it's in the Bible, if it's instructive of us, we should be willing to live by it and die by it. We believe that we should take the principles of this Bible and apply them to our lives personally. We are people of convictions. We don't live by preferences we don't live by cultural norms. We live by the eternal principles of the Bible. Amen? And our convictions should be seen in our lives. It shouldn't just be what we say we believe. You should be able to, to witness the behavior that is godly in our lives wherever we go every day. If you're really good when you walk in these doors, but when you, if you're bad when you walk out, you've missed the entire point 
of four weeks of teaching. I know you know that. The dispersed church in, in this text of 1 Peter scattered throughout the world. But not only are they scattered throughout different countries or regions, but they're in different communities. They're in different cultural groups. They're in different vocations, towns, etc. That's where we are. And if people see that our lives are lived by convictions and not convenience, that our convictions are seen in our lives, that our convictions do not change, and that they are consistent. In other words, we're not real strong here and then weak over here. You know, we declare that we're really holy and we look holy, but we lie and cheat and steal and lust and all of that. That would be inconsistent. But our inward and outward holiness match because we are the called out ones, called out of darkness into His marvelous light. So I guess I should ask, are you a Christian? Based on all of that. Verse 16. Paul says it's free, not using your liberty for cover-up, for ungodliness, for maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Amen. And you can hear some Christians, you know, Peter's maybe anticipating arguments. I know he's inspired by the Holy Ghost to write. We believe in verbal plenary inspiration that the very words in the original are God-breathed, right? So the Holy Ghost is anointing Peter to write this. He would say holy men of God wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But maybe some of his readers were objecting. They're saying, are you telling us that we should submit to these ungodly people more than Jesus Christ? And Paul is letting them know that it's not this or that, it's this and that. That by submitting to God, you also submit to the people He's put in authority in your life, which concludes governing authorities. You're called to freedom, but not free from the law, free from the power of sin to not fulfill the law. The righteousness of God, we're free to live for God, not bound to not be able to live for God. Now throughout history, there were people like the zealots who rebelled against the Roman Empire. They were always looking for a chance to rebel against them. There were the people like the Stoics who tried to detach themselves from life. But the freedom that Paul wrote about was not freedom from government. It was a freedom from sin. It was a freedom to do the right thing and called to do that. Amen. And then Paul says, verse 12, Having your conversation, this is 1 Peter 2.12, not on the screens, honest among the Gentiles that where they speak against you as evildoers by your good works, they would glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, this has an end result that eventually they would be saved because of your life. Amen. Peter wants us to know that our godly character is a powerful witness in the world or salt and light we're called to show forth the praises of Him. And then he sums up this section in verse 17. All right? Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the King. End of this section on our relationship to civil authority. And then he launches right into another section on corporate authority. Now, it's written in the context of slaves and slave owners, 
but it has its application to our culture. 1 Peter 2.18 Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the thrower, the bad ones. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Everybody say on the job. This is the context. For what glory is it when you be written up, buffeted if you're a slave back then, for your faults, you're disobedient, you're bad, you're slacking, you're cheating on the time clock, stealing from the company. If you get fired because you're living like the devil, there's no glory in that, Peter says. And you say, well, I'm being really patient. Well, you ought to be. It's your fault, right? He said, there's no glory in that if you take it patiently when you're a really bad employee. But what if when you do well, you suffer for it? You take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. That's what really pleases the Lord. So, now I want you to think of the work conditions in those days. First century AD. There's no department of labor. There are no unions. There are no labor laws. There's no OSHA safety compliance laws. There's no workman's compensation. There's no vacation time. There's no retirement. A lot of people were day laborers. And there are people who had accidents at work. Jesus spoke about the 18 men who died in an accident while they were building the Tower of Siloam. But there's nothing that Jesus said about anything that was given to their families. You know, that was the environment in which they worked. Luke 13, 4, in case you want to know about that story. There is very little power to the servant, to the laborer. The power was in the hands of the slave owners, to the employer. And there were people who were hired. Remember the parable of the servants? He went out in the marketplace and hired day laborers throughout the day. Those that went out first agreed to a penny a day Right? So people did get paid in that day. They earned wages. So there was both slavery and also wages. But I want you to see kind of this system that is tilted toward this, the business owner, the employer, and the employee or the servant doesn't have many rights at all. This is the culture in which they live. And the Apostle Peter is saying, sometimes you get a really good boss. Verse 18. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. Sometimes you get a really bad boss. If you've ever had a bad boss, I'd like to see your hands. This is a bad boss. I mean a bad boss. Hold up your hand. Just look around. Look at all these suffering Christians here for real, you know. This is true. I'm not making this up or exaggerating or trying to make fun of you. Most all of us have had a bad boss. I remember a particular time my boss... I was working as hard as I could and, and he was just on me. I had no idea why. I, I'm going to blame it on him being under conviction. <laughs> Peter says, the New Living Translation, do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they're cruel. Now, you don't have to raise your hands on this. But if that sounds a little unreasonable, you're like, man, what kind of church, what kind of Bible is this? Who wrote that Bible? And it tells me that I'm supposed to have a good attitude. 
Now, everybody was doing pretty good when I talked about suffering and trials, but, but this is the book of 1 Peter. It's the Job of the New Testament, remember? And the apostle Peter is writing to people who are in a pagan culture, who are in circumstances that are not easy. And sometimes it's the government that's grinding on you. And sometimes it's your employer, your boss, who's grinding on you. And the apostle Peter says, even when you've got a bad boss, you need to have a good attitude and you need to be a Christian even when you're in bad circumstances. Our attitude, and I know this is not easy. By the way, I forgot to look around for people who work for the church when I asked if you had a bad boss. Just thought of that. Let's go back and do that again. Well, the Apostle Peter is saying that our attitude should not be determined by how we're treated. Our attitude should not be determined by whether or not we have a good boss. That's what the Bible says. I'm not saying that's easy. Our attitude should be determined by scriptural principles by which we live. And you've heard me say before, I, we, we don't always have the right attitude, but because we have a Bible, we know what the right attitude should be. And we can pray and talk to ourselves and repent and maybe even apologize to an ungodly boss or supervisor. I feel that right now. <laughs> because we should do the right thing even when they don't. Amen? We have a Bible that teaches us. We have this, you know, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the be attitudes, the attitudes that should be in the people of God, and a whole Bible that says that. And then look at verse 20. You know, we went through this, but I'm kind of going phrase by phrase. For what glory is it when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. You get a gold star. God smiles on your life because you in the middle of suffering, you in the middle of an, of an unhealthy work environment have managed to have a good attitude and to stay honest when people around you are not. I had a little inspiration this morning that I may write about one day, the sin of self-promotion. In the world, dog eat dog, climb the ladder, just push anybody out of the way you need to. That is the way of the world. That is not the way of the church. That is not the way of a Christian. I assure you, God can find you in a dungeon, in a prison, if you will be true to Him. Joseph, in a single day, you can go from being in a prison to the second highest person in the company or the country. Don't compromise principles to try to, to try to fight your way ahead by being unethical and by being political. Satan's I wills destroyed him, his selfish ambition. So there's a way, it's called hard work, reputation, standing for principles, doing a great job to be recognized and to be promoted. And there's a lot of scriptures that say that you should humble yourself let God exalt you. That you should let another man praise you and not you yourself. Alright. So it's not wrong in my view. This is my view. And Paul did this to take advantage of the law that is in your favor 
of policies in your company that are in your favor to wisely appeal to those in authority. Paul used his Roman citizenship to his advantage. He had the law on his side even though there were times when the law was violated by people who didn't know he was a Roman citizen or people who just trampled over that to try to destroy him. So I don't want you to think that it's wrong for you to use policies, principles, and laws to your advantage or to do what you need to do as long as you do it in the right way with the right motive, but you don't cheat and you don't manipulate to do to get some result. You go about it the right way. The means, right? The end does not justify the means. The end regulates the means. The outcome that you want tells you how to get there. There's a path that is biblical that tells you how you should conduct yourself while you're wisely, appeal, wisely appealing to the authority. Amen. So Peter says we should take it patiently. Amen. Now, there's other scriptures. Uh, when the Apostle Peter writes about government, when he writes about uh, work, he doesn't give us a balancing principle. that Paul does. And he writes to the masters, to the company owners, to tell them that they need to do it right. And then the Apostle Peter, he, he goes into, right after this section on uh, workplace authority and relationships, right, the corporate world, he goes into this thing how Jesus suffered and there was no guile found in his mouth. He was reviled. He didn't revile again. And that's what he talked about in our relationship with civil authority in our relationship with corporate authority. But then in chapter 3, now he goes through that section about the suffering of Jesus, but we're going to look at 1 Peter 3 and 1. I have an entire lesson on these seven verses that's kind of family relationships, and I, I try to distill this down. I will do my best to not just wear this out because maybe it's good for another time. But it's in this context of 1 Peter 3. Now there's only five chapters. He spends seven verses of chapter 3 to write about domestic relationships. Let's read it and then let's break it down. 1 Peter 3, 1. Likewise, remember what likewise what? Like Jesus did, like corporate authority, like government. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, if you have an unsaved husband, they, may, they also may without the word be won by the behavior, by the conversation of their wives. Now we'll take a look at that. Uh, just think about it. So you're not going to preach to them, but your life is going to preach to them. I'm talking about how our relationships with civil authority, corporate authority, and domestic authority is a witness. It's a testimony. And Peter is writing here, that wives with unsaved husbands can have a powerful influence over them by the way they live. So don't miss verse 1, right? And, and what are they going to see? Verse 2, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. I know this stilted King James on purpose. I could use other translations. They're watching your godly life. Who's adorning? Talking to wives. Let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. 
For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, my favorite scripture in the Bible, calling him Lord. I'm just kidding. To my wife, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Whose daughters you are, as long as you do well and are not afraid, as long as you don't chicken out with any amazement. Verse 7. Now it has six verses to women, but he's real, he kind of tiptoes in there for the women and tells a story. He's real gentle, you know. To the men, he's just bam, bam, like two punches real fast. Likewise, you husbands, Dwell with them, your wives, according to knowledge. Giving honor unto the wife is unto the weaker vessel and is being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. Watch out, big guy, because God's your boss. So that's kind of what he's saying. Now, again, this passage is very powerful. There's a lot in the Bible about gender roles, about marriage relationships. I'm going to try, as I said, to distill this down. You have to recognize the setting. Remember I told you that, I didn't really talk about this with government, but with government, government was heavy-handed. It was not a democracy. In the, in the corporate world, that was not a level playing field. It was tilted toward the slave owner or the boss. And in the home, it was not a level playing field. It was tilted toward the husband. In some places in their culture, a woman was like a piece of, author a piece of property. She was not really the way God intended her to be as a counterpart, a complement to complete Adam, to be by his side. She was treated poorly in a lot of contexts. But this is who Peter is writing to. He's writing to people who live in a fallen world where there's a lot of injustices and he wants them to do the best they can for the best outcome. He's not trying to punish the God's people. He's trying to let this turn out well for them and well for the people who are depending on their witness. So he's writing to these, these Jewish and non-Jewish wives whose husbands are not in the church. Now if a husband came in the church, the family might come with him, like Cornelius's household, like the Philippian jailer. But if the wife comes by herself, maybe her husband, he's like, eh, I don't know about this, right? And I know women could do that same thing, but this is kind of the idea. If she's saved first and her husband is not saved, he's wondering, what has my wife gotten into? Her behavior's changed. Her attire has changed. Her whole look has changed. And it should be for the better, not the worse. Now, this is the advice that the Apostle Peter gives to women who live in a society where there's a lot of inequity, okay? That's the society in which they live. And he said, I want to give you some advice, ladies, when your husband is not serving the Lord. And you'll see these verses on the screen, but I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time rereading them, but he's telling these wives, in verse 1, I want you to submit to your husband, and I want him to watch your life, and I want him to see the change in you. Now I'm going to do a little application. Don't go home and tell him the sermon that you just heard today and how he needs to follow it. Because he's going to be one. You can put that verse back up for a minute. I know I'm confusing media team. He's going to be one without the word. What does that mean? 
that your life is preaching to him and your prayers are reaching for him. That's exactly what the Apostle Peter is saying to these women. So you've got to be careful how much you say because men are weird. You're going to turn him off. You're going to drive him away. The Apostle Peter understands. God knows what he's saying. And this is primarily written to ungodly husbands, but I will tell you, ladies, whether it's fair or not, or you like it or not, this might be true for your saved husband, that a lot of preaching probably has an adverse effect. Proverbs might have called it dripping water, Chinese water torture, something like that. Drip, drip, drip. You can read it for yourself in the book of Proverbs. I'm not making this up. The way to a man's heart is not through a delicious meal. It's through your attitude, your submissive spirit. Something's changed in you. And verse 2 tells us that your husband is going to behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, reverence, godliness. You don't think he's watching you, but he's going like, what in the world has happened to her? She went to ladies' prayer on the third Tuesday of the month and came home like, wow, she must have really prayed through. She got in that church. I don't like her being gone to church, but when she got back home, she's better than when she left. I think I want her to go again. He's watching you. That's what Peter is saying. He's beholding you, but he sees something he didn't see before. It's a godly, a chaste behavior. And now a reverence for a husband because now she's learning the divine order that the Bible teaches that is not taught in the world. So something is changing her and the husband is noticing that. In verse 3, he tells her to focus on inward beauty and not outward beauty. That all of this adorning on the outside to try to impress a man, it is, it's a really competitive business. You're not getting younger. There's a lot of competition. And if you don't keep your husband by your godliness and your true love, you're not going to be able to compete with somebody 10 years younger than you. Maybe. I know you think you can, but I'm just quoting the Bible, showing him what, verse 3, move right past that. He tells him not to count on that. The Bible said that Sarah was a beautiful woman and that Rachel was a beautiful woman and that Abigail was a beautiful woman and that Queen Esther was a beautiful woman. The Apostle Peter is not trying to say when you get saved, don't try to be beautiful. But these women were beautiful in their natural beauty, not in what they did to themselves. And he goes through plaiting of hair, wearing of gold, the type of apparel that would be sensual or immodest, seductive, that that's how you would try to, to attract him. But in verse 4 he says, instead of that, you're trying to preach to your husband by your life. This is what he's getting at. Let it be the hidden man of the heart. Something that is not corruptible. It doesn't get old. It doesn't wrinkle. It doesn't gray. It can get better over time. It's your spirit that gets better over time because you're more like Jesus Christ. He said it's the ornament, not all the decking on the outside, but it's the ornamentation on the inside. 
And he describes what it is. A meek and quiet spirit. Not in a frenzy, not all worked up, but somebody that is at peace with who they are, at peace in their relationship, at peace with God. And Peter said that this type of an attitude is in the sight of God of great price. It's a big deal to God for you to have a good attitude. Amen. The ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. And he's keeping their seat undisturbed. I told you I'm trying to distill this down and you know my nature is to drill down but I'm trying to go high level. Verse 5. He gives them an example. This is how, this is, this is not new. I'm not making this up in 1 Peter 3. This is how the entire Old Testament, this is how godly women in the Old Testament lived. The holy women of old. They trusted in God. That's how they adorned themselves, the inside, not focused on the outside. And they were in subjection, I'm just reading the Bible, don't be mad at me, unto their own husbands. These godly women in the Old Testament, they really did it right. They trusted in God. Now, they may not have always trusted everything their husbands did, every decision they made. I'm not talking about their moral character, their decisions. I mean, Sarah must have really been concerned when Abraham said, tell him you're my sister. Remember that? It didn't turn out very good. It would be hard to trust Abraham, but if you trust God, and Abraham's your husband, and you submit knowing that God's going to work on him, and it's going to turn out good if you follow biblical principles instead of taking things into your own hands. Don't get insecure with doing the right thing. Sarah did that. And then verse 6, you know, he says, holy women of old did this. And then he gives us the specific example of Sarah, that Sarah was respectful to her husband. And he said, you're going to be the daughters of Sarah. He's the father of the faithful, you know, Abraham. And here's Sarah, his wife. I mean, that's the original. It goes all the way back, the people of faith. And he said, you're going to be the daughters of Sarah as long as you do well. And as I said earlier, kind of paraphrasing, don't chicken out. Don't quit. Don't say, oh, this is not working. It doesn't work in a minute or a day or a week. It works when you do the right thing and never quit doing the right thing. Amen? That's the way God's principles work. So he really... He, he deals with these ladies and he tells them to, to have a right relationship with their husband that if they will and they will live for God and they will focus on inner beauty and submit to their husbands as the Bible says, they have the greatest chance of winning them to the Lord. Just like people on the job have the greatest chance of winning other employees and their bosses to the Lord. Just like people in civil authority have the greatest chance of influencing their society by the way we live our lives. That's what First Peter is about. Now he gives some advice to the men. Likewise you husbands dwell with them according to knowledge. That's, that takes a miracle. Giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. And he says likewise, in the same way, civil authority, corporate authority, what we just told your wife she's supposed to do, don't think you're exempt from that. You, here's some writings for you. Now, here's the amazing thing. Remember I told you that when the Apostle Peter wrote about government, civil authority, he didn't do a counterbalance. He didn't write to the governors. When he talked about 
corporate authority as opposed to the way Paul wrote, the apostle Peter did not write about the other side. He didn't write the balancing principles. He left that to Paul. I'm just going to say that. But when he wrote about domestic authority, the apostle Peter gave us a balance. He didn't just tell the wives how they should live. He wisely spoke to the husbands. And I believe there's a really good reason he was married. He was. He was married. His mother-in-law was sick and God loves mother-in-laws and Jesus healed her. And Paul said, if I wanted to, I could lead about a wife like Cephas does, like Peter does. Now, I don't think that's why he wrote this. I think he wrote it because it was needed. But it's just interesting to me, and I've never really thought this through, that of these other relationships, he doesn't give the balance, but about this marriage relationship, he does. He gives the balance. And he tells husbands that they're to live with their wives in an understanding way, dwell with them according to knowledge. Now, I could really spend a lot of time on this because I'm a man and I understand how dumb I am sometimes, how much I miss sometimes, miss. But he tells men that you are to study your wife. You're to think about her. You're to consider her needs. You're to dwell with her according to knowledge. And I could spend a lot of time talking about that. I cut all of that out of my notes because I'm trying to distill this down. Dwell with them according to knowledge. This is what the Bible said that men are supposed to do. Don't be clumsy in relationships. You can be focused on your job. You can be focused on your hobbies. You can be focused on yourself. You can be focused on a lot of things. But the Bible said that you're to dwell with her according to knowledge. And then he says that you're to give honor unto the wife. This is what verse 7 says. Giving honor, likewise you husbands dwell with them according to knowledge. Giving honor unto the wife. And then he says you honor her two ways. You honor her as the weaker vessel and you honor her as an equal vessel. Now, not in every case because I know exceptions, but in many cases a man may be physically stronger than a woman. We have these men, trans men, winning these athletic competitions, right? Which is really weird in our world. I don't like it. I think it's wrong. But God made us male and female. And, and he made man to be the protector, the provider primarily, according to the Bible. I know women worked in the Bible. Women work today. I get all that. But in, in our culture through the years, it was like women were supposed to honor their husbands, but it doesn't say that, that men are to honor their wives. And you honor her as a weaker vessel. You protect her. You take care of her. You provide for her. You look out for her. You don't let the children run over her. If you're home, you're the disciplinarian. You don't shove that off to her. You honor her as the weaker vessel. And then he said you honor her as an heir together, an equal vessel. It's not all about you men. It's not all about you being happy and you having a day off and you having time and you worked and you get to come home and do nothing. She worked. Oh, this is really quiet, but there's a lot of bruised ribs right now. Way to go, wives. Amen. Laughter is the anesthesia, right? As the knife goes in. So anyway, dwell with them, live with them according to knowledge. 
live with them in an understanding way. Honor your wife as a weaker vessel, as an, as an heir together of the grace of life. And he said, if you don't do that, your prayers are going to be hindered. Now this is a very strong verse. I think it can apply back to wise service all the way through. The principle could be applied. But it is specifically to these husbands in 1 Peter 3, 7 that when men do not treat their wives the way they should, that God, lest the heavens be brass. Remember the centurion, he's a man under authority. All of us men, we're under God's authority and other authorities in our life. If we mistreat the people who are supposed to, who are trusting us, got all these six verses written to men about how these wives are supposed to be nice and like Sarah and like the holy women of old and focus on inner beauty. Do you think God's going to let that husband off the hook for mistreating his wife, not honoring her, not living with her in an understanding way? No. He is going to look out for that wife just like he looks out for children. And if you're in a place of authority, you should be careful because you know that you are under the authority of God. Amen. Now, I'm going to stop there because that's the end of this passage. But as I look back on this entire book, and again, there's a lot. There's a lot of things I could say that are in this book that are really true. But the beginning of this book, the Apostle Peter tells us that we have an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for us. He, he begins this book with a lot of hope. And then he takes us through this journey of suffering and submission and trouble. And he teaches us that if we will just bear up under suffering, if we will have a right relationship with, with people in government, with people in the job, with our families, that we can be a powerful witness to the world. It's the right thing to do. It pleases the Lord and it is a witness. But then at the end of the book, the Apostle Peter says that after you've suffered a while, the Lord is going to strengthen you. He's going to establish you. He's going to settle you. He's going to help you be a firm person, a person in your culture, in your world, that is a tremendous witness for Jesus Christ that will be a light to the world. He's called us out of darkness. He called us to show forth the praises of Him. Amen? If you're able, please stand. Amen. Praise God. I hope that in the past four weeks, you've learned something about this book. One of the things that amazes me about the Bible, that it does not matter how many times you read it or how frequently you study it, when you open the Bible, truth explodes out of God's Word. When you take the time to, to mine it and to see what it really says. And in this little epistle, you know, Paul gets a lot of 13 books of the Bible, the great apostle Paul, Man, the Apostle Peter, I'm amazed when I think that this fisherman, this Galilean fisherman, 
called an ignorant and unlearned man. He never went to seminary. He didn't sit at the feet of Gamaliel like the Apostle Paul. He wasn't a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a common Christian, but he became a pretty amazing theologian. And even as a common man, he knew his Bible. He knew the Old Testament. And he had deep spiritual insight. And he writes with amazing clarity to people just like you and me who are dispersed throughout the world so that we would live right find the approval of God so that we would be a witness in the world that's what we were called to do these are messages to the dispersed church I'd like to take a few minutes to pray tonight and I really pondered saying let's just go home and pray you know, where you're standing but I'm, I'm inviting you to come for one reason that I never know, you never know, who needs to pray and needs you to pray with them. So if you need to go, if it's late for you and you have a super early morning, I respect that. But if you have a few minutes, would you come and let's just pray. I want to ask the Lord to help us learn the lessons that we need. I want to learn the lessons that I need. Not just out of 1 Peter, but specifically out of this book. Amen. I want to encourage you. I had an experience this week. I told Brother Jury about this. A vehicle was being worked on. He sent somebody to pick me up. I mean, back up to Thornton Chevrolet. Talk briefly. I was responding to text messages, had a lot of stuff on my mind. That evening, a dagger of conviction. You had five minutes with a person that is not saved that you know of. And you were on another planet. And I've repented of that. Asked the Lord to forgive me. And I made a note to try to get in touch with that person. To at least let them know I'm praying for them about something specific. This entire book, you know, the dispersed church. We could be scattered, you know, like go to our jobs, go to our neighborhoods, go to the stores, go to wherever we have recreation, whatever you do in your life. And we can just have tunnel vision. I did, I'm admitting it and be oblivious. This person had a physical ailment and I, and I didn't, you know, I'm, it's terrible. I will make up for this. Didn't even say, you know what, I'm going to pray for you. Can I pray for you right now? Oh, I'm busy. I'm, I'm a pastor. I've got a lot to do. We haven't been scattered in the world just to squeak by and go to heaven. Right? I know you know that. We've been dispersed to make a difference. So let's pray right now.
pray, Lord God, that you would help us be the light of the world. I said, talk to the Lord. Our relationships to civil authority, our relationships on the job, with corporate authority, our domestic relationships in the home. Whether you're a husband, a wife, a single person, a single parent, a single, we all live in a context of relationships. And the Lord has called us to healthy relationships. The Lord has called us to be His light in the world, wherever we are, with whomever we're with. Lord, I pray that you would help us be holy. I pray, Lord, that you would help us be your people, Lord, be ambassadors of yours in Jesus' name.